Have you ever been hypnotized? Uh, technically speaking, yes. I have, uh, I have been subjected to, to hypnosis. There was a hypnotist at um, our senior prom. And I, I just want to say it's, it's bullshit. I was not hypnotized. I was, I was playing along. And apparently I did such a poor job that I remember a friend of mine saying, like, yeah, you were obviously not hypnotized. So I'm a bad actor as well as, uh, you know, not being a good subject for hypnosis. Were you really at fault, though? You know, I, I was going to say, like, yeah, chuck the, take, that, take that up with a hypnotist, right? <laughs> it seems more like a, a hypnotist problem, but... I think he did a piss-poor job. No, I don't know. I, there were other people who, like, swore they were hypnotized. I think we, we, they, uh, during, like, orientation at, like, college, there was, like, a hypnotist, too. And I really, really wanted to get up there because I wanted to, like, you know, oh, I gotta, gotta see if it's for real. Gotta see if this guy's any better. <laughs> but, um, no, I, I, I don't really buy it. And I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a very suggestible person. I can believe anything. I believe in ghosts. I believe in, like, you know, aliens and shit. But uh, I don't know. I, hypnosis for me, in my experience, dubious. Well, it's like, and there's a lot of different ideas on what hypnosis is and how it actually operates. Um, major split on whether it's, like, a true altered state or whether it's just, uh, uh, like, a reinterpretation of how we understand, like, the relationship between, uh, like, therapists and their patients. Whole, whole big thing. Non-state theory is nuts. So it's, like, I, I don't know. I, there's not even really, like, consensus on what hypnosis is. Um, and I think if we look at it, like, from the perspective of you know, culturally what, what it is presented to be like, it's, it's not, no, <laughs> been to a lot of therapy though. Um, but I, I can't say that like hypnotism as we understand it or how, however we're choosing to operate w with it, uh, is a thing that I can say is real or not. Lucille, have you ever attempted hypnosis in any form? I have not. Okay. Okay. Bennett, I have a similar story to you where we had grad night in high school or after graduation, they rented out like this giant arcade bowling alley place and the final thing it like, cause it was an all night party and at like 3am they had a hypnotist and his sales pitch was anyone who gets hypnotized will feel like you've had a full night's rest of sleep. So like 30 people ran up. My friends and I were all like, no, this is stupid. Um, but it was funny. I mean, he had people like, you know, flapping like birds and laughing their asses off and I was no, I was impressed at the performances of other people, and maybe they were really hypnotized, or maybe they're better actors than I was. But uh, exactly, yeah, but I like, definitely I broke the illusion for a lot of people. <laughs> well, he did like walk people out, like okay, you're not really doing it. He just kind of excused them, but like <laughs> a few of them, like he had this part where he was like, "You're hearing the funniest joke you've ever heard," and my friend Charlie, who has maybe the greatest laugh I've ever heard, was like belly laughing and like rolled onto his back, and so it was like that, that was worth it for the, the whole thing. <laughs> But no, I've I've never attempted hypnosis either. I'm I'm neurotic enough that it would find a way to go wrong, I think. Welcome back to Split Picks. We are continuing our special October horror series, looking at Japanese horror today with one of the heavy hitters of the genre. Today we're talking about Kyoshi Kurosawa. Considering the first thing on Google about him is, is he related to Akira? We're just going to quickly say no, he is not. 
What he is is an endlessly intriguing filmmaker who has made some of the finest horror films Japan has to offer, but his resume is so much deeper than that. And even his works that are classified as horror pack in so much more than just, you know, a, a typical, like, ooh, boo fest. So I'm very excited. We got a new split picker today. She is the bass player in my country band, and she can do pretty much anything from death metal to jazz. So we're putting her to work to talk about horror movies. Welcome, Lucille. Howdy. How you doing today? I'm all right. Um, again, you know, bed at three, woke up at seven. Uh, it's good. We're good. It's going to be good. I'm doing well. How are you? I think we're all in the same boat where none of us yes. slept last night, so <laughs> it's gonna be good. It's a good uh, headspace for Kurosawa films. I think. Well, I mean, there's an argument to be made for that. Yeah, you know, a little, a little dreamy, a little dreamlike. Hopefully, it's dreaming on a nightmare. But we'll see. <laughs> we'll see how tongue-tied I am. <laughs> this will be heavily edited, folks. <laughs> One take. Let's party. Okay, we'll do that. And as usual, Bennett Glaze. You're back again. How are you today? Uh, not too bad. I, I, I also had, uh, let's say, a night last night. Uh, I won't want to elaborate so as not to incriminate myself. But uh, yeah, also uh, definitely uh, in the mood to talk some spooky flicks. Because I don't know if you felt that. There's a there's a creepy chill in the air. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's the beginning of the season. It's officially October now. We don't have yeah. to lie anymore and say, oh, it's October. <laughs> we can We can say it. <laughs> So we have a great matchup of films today. Um, we generally tend to aim to discuss two lesser-known works from each director on this show, but we couldn't resist talking about one of Kurosawa's masterworks, and we decided it had to be either Cure or Pulse. I'm very excited that we selected Cure, and after the wild success we had with the alphabetical selection choice last week with the Grudge, Grudge, Grudge episode... We went deep into his catalog and picked Daguerreotype. <laughs> so we're going to discuss these films chronologically. So first up will be Cure from 1997. Lucille, do you just want to maybe give us a quick intro to Cure and a little bit about why you chose to lead the discussion on this film today? Yeah, Cure is a film that came out in 1997, uh, directed and written by Kiyoshi Kurosawa. Uh, I hadn't seen this movie uh, before getting ready for this. And I, I don't know, really my, my motivation here with it is that I've always known that it, f through secondhand knowledge that it's it's one of the best. It's like uh, Bong Joon-ho's, like one of his favorite movies. Uh, it seems to be pretty seminal in the region that it comes from and especially like the time period. Kurosawa also just really, really great. And yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a legacy thing for me and it's... It comes at, at great and significant suggestion from taste that I trust. And Bennett, you selected Daguerreotype from 2016. What stands out to you about this film and what led you to selecting it for today? Well, you know, Craig, I, I always like to pick um, kind of off the beaten path films, films that are somewhat uh, unloved, sometimes films that are despised. And uh, I don't know, this one always kind of like stuck in my craw as like an unusual entry in his, his filmography. I mean, first it's it's in French, you know, shot in France, starring French actors. So a departure there. But also it really seemed to divide people. Um, it has pretty crappy reviews in general from people I follow on Letterboxd, besides like a few people who are incredibly passionate about it, like call it his best. 
so I, you know, I figured, hey, got to take a look at this. And uh, yeah, I was uh, was pleasantly uh, not surprised, but I, you know, I was glad to 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 watch it and see that it ended up being very much my kind of film. Uh, it's a departure in certain ways, but it's it's also nice to see, you know, he he plays some of the hits in like a new location and they still work. Mm. He did, yeah, he he fits a lot into that movie. But maybe before jumping into Cure, this this is a man who has a lot a lot of films. I mean, what do you maybe both just want to give me your quick overview on your take of him as a director, and you can be as vague or specific as you'd like here. <laughs> man makes a good movie. Like I, I don't agree. know, he's got a very like dreamy kind of ethereal vibe going that I I very much appreciate. Um, that also can sometimes make it a little bit difficult to engage with, uh, but not as a negative. Yeah. A little esoteric feels nice. Yeah, he's a guy I've been um, like kind of slowly working my way through his filmography over the last few years. Um, you know, he's got a lot of kind of passionate fans on you know like film Twitter, Letterboxd, and um, I don't know. He's a, he's just a fascinating guy to me because there's a lot in his aesthetic that is very much of a piece with other, you know, films from, from Japan, other J horror films. At the same time, there's something so singular about the tone that he captures and the, the just, there's such like a desolate quality to his films. They're all so depressing and depressed and they all end on these sort of like apocalyptic notes. Um, you know, I, I really don't think there's anybody like him. I'd forgot to mention on the, the, the grudge episode that uh, Shimizu who uh, directed the grudge was a student of Kurosawa's. I think you can kind of see it. I think, I think the grudge movies could be called like a poor man's Kurosawa film, honestly. Well, Kurosawa helped get that series off the ground. I think he was like the first person to say like, there's something here in the shorts and he helped him make mm-hmm. the first Jew on the curse. Yeah. I mean, you can tell, I mean, obviously Shimizu never surpassed, uh, <laughs> never surpassed Kurosawa, but uh, yeah, you could definitely see some of the influence there. And then, um, you know, it's interesting because I, I've seen basically only his horror films, a few of his crime films. Um, at the same time, you know, only seeing like a quarter of his filmography, I've seen like 10 times as many uh, Kiyoshi Kurosawa films as I have Akira Kurosawa films. Okay. I have seen, I've seen two, kind of two Akira Kurosawa films, one of my biggest blind spots. And I thought it was funny if you like, if you go to like podcasts about Kiyoshi Kurosawa, there are literally two called "Not That Kurosawa." <laughs> uh, I don't know. For my money, the better director, from what I've seen. Okay, that's a big statement, but <laughs> it's a bold statement. But I do love his stuff, and he he is one of those filmmakers where you can kind of you just feel he's at the helm of the camera. You know, I mean, mm. I loved Charisma. That's not one of his horror movies, but the way he makes his films, like he does draw from like everything he's done in a very interesting way. Like even, you know, Tokyo Sonata, I just watched that one the other night. He just crams so much in and he's so good at following multiple people. Cause I, I feel like that's when a lot of people lose their movies. It's like, Oh, well, we need to have multiple plots that intertwine at the end. But like he always finds a way to pull it off. And I think cure is probably the strongest film characters he has from what i've seen i this is a masterwork if you ask me should we jump into cure is it is it time if it pleases you let's do it so for starters this is a podcast about japanese horror and i think there is an argument to be made that really neither of these films today are technically horror films so i just wanted to start by opening up asking about how you feel about labeling this as a horror movie I, I tend to be incredibly liberal with like genre uh, labels. 
you know, if a movie has ghosts in it, if there's like a spooky location, I'll tend to call it a horror movie. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of discourse in recent years about quote unquote post horror films. Uh, you know, Olivia Asayas's Personal Shopper, uh, David Lowry's A Ghost Story. Like those for me are are horror movies because they're you know, that's the the, the cinematic language they're they're calling upon. Um, so yeah, I mean, even though Cure is sort of a, the crime movie and Daguerreotype is sort of a gothic romance. They're both spooky enough in in tone and substance that I would not feel like I'm stretching to to call them horror films. I I think that I would agree with that uh, sentiment. I mean, with Cure, it's it's very psychological. It's very like suspense thriller kind of thing. And I don't know, even the like the on camera deaths that you do see aren't impactful in the way that you might think of uh, a typical horror movie to be. I don't know. I'm on the fence, but I can I can quote unquote see both sides. I guess I'm in the same boat. Yeah, I mean, I think from a technicality standpoint, this is probably more of a you know serial killer film. But even then, its approach to the genre is pretty unique. Lucille, do you maybe want to give us a quick overview of what Cure is about, and maybe a bit about how the killings start and what the unifying factor is between them all? Sure. Uh, Cure is a film about a detective. His name is Takabe, uh, who is investigating a series of killings uh, that are seemingly random. Uh, each of the murder victims are killed and then have uh, like an X or a cross uh, slashed into their throat region. But what's interesting is that the people committing these crimes uh, do not seem to be. What's the word? Cognizant. Yeah, well, that's the thing, though. They are cognizant of it. Uh, They're cognizant of it, but they don't understand why they're doing it until after uh, and then feel great shame uh, and and grief over it. But also, more importantly, I think, with the exception of the the first killer, uh, who we don't really learn anything about that much, everybody who does commit a murder is somebody that you might consider to be a reliable narrator i guess uh in the sense that like you know we have we've got teachers we've got cops we've got doctors these are all people who might be understood to be of a higher moral moral fiber so why is it that they would commit these sort of crimes and so takabe is is trying to get to the bottom of that uh and encounters an individual named mamiya who seems to be connected in some way and it's just kind of a big old rabbit hole from there both of them falling into it and each other it's remarkable how many like things he manages to stuff in this movie. There are so oh, many yeah. like symbols and, and oh yeah, I, sort of things that like would be a killer's mo in another movie, like the the monkeys or the X's. Mm-hmm. Like, he manages to squeeze that all in, uh, which is really impressive because it's not like it's uh it's not a, it's not an especially long movie. No. I don't know, in like a normal runtime, he manages to squeeze in you know what what feels like several films worth of sort of uh, signs and signifiers. So you mentioned Detective Takabe, but yes. we also have Mamiya, who is so fascinating. I mean, even mm. from the first time we see him. I mean, can one of you give us a bit of a rundown about how he enters the film and a bit about how we're introduced to him? Uh, absolutely. Uh, Mamiya's entrance is maybe my favorite thing in the film. Uh, we see him on, just on a beach, just standing, uh, hanging out. Uh, surrounded by nothing in a completely like barren environment uh, from my perspective that kind of like tells you everything you need to know about him uh, there's nothing to know there is nothing there he just is and he does yeah and then he starts interacting with Hanaoka uh, his the the first on-screen uh, individual that we see interacting with Mamiya who uh, becomes subject to 
the circumstances, I guess, if you want to put it that way. But yeah, just just this kind of like surreal beach scene, uh, very bland background, nothing going on. And the first time I looked at that, I don't think that it really made sense to me. But, you know, upon reviewing, it makes a lot of sense. And I think it's a it's a really good little bit of uh, foreshadowing. This movie will probably come back to this idea, but seeing it a second time, like, oh, my God, there are dots to be connected. <laughs> like, mm. he lays so much out there in plain sight that once you revisit, it's like, oh, oh wow, okay, there's a lot happening here. But, Lucille, how, how does Mamiya talk? Because he is uh, really unlike anyone I've really seen in a film before. So, like, understanding Mamiya, I think, as a character kind of helps get into that because... Early on in the film, we don't really know anything about him. He has nothing to share. Uh, very late in the film, do we find out that he studies psychology and also Mesmer, uh, who is the guy notable for popularizing the concept of hypnosis um, in our current culture, but coming at it from this very academic angle. From my perspective, Mamiya speaks like a therapist, in, or at least as a weaponized therapist, in the sense that in all of his conversations, he is attempting to redirect focus from himself and who he is and is trying to gain insight into the person that he's talking to. He's very interested in who a person really is, like more than their uh, surface level identity. Uh, so m- many times, you know, he'll ask, like, who are you uh, to somebody? And like in the instance of Hanaoka, you know, he says that he's a teacher, you know, uh, just kind of a, a vague nothing answer. But he keeps, you know, he persists on that question, which I think like is then interpreted by characters in the film and also to first time viewers as being uh, amnesiac. From my perspective, it is very much like this idea of like weaponized psychology, uh, trying to manipulate and confuse people in order to put them into a state where he can then suggest further uh, and have them do the things that he's trying to get them to do. He never answers questions, though. Everything he says is a question. Yes. He'll turn the question on to anyone just "Mm, this, you know, it's just everything he says is a question, which I really like. Bennett, what's your take on Mamiya? Uh, yeah, no, I, I like the, the the idea of, of of looking at it as as sort of like almost like weaponized uh, therapy speak. Yeah, he mm-hmm. uh, you know he kind of bombards people with questions, and it's clear that you know for many people that, that this fundamental question of like who are you is a very existentially terrifying one. It really seems to be at the heart of uh, his uh, his crimes and the the you know the way he gets people to to do the things he gets them to do. I think his intro is incredible as well. Him just mm. kind of like walking along that beach, a really classic Kurosawa shot. I mean, that's when I think of his films, I think of, I think of shots like that. You know, I think of like kind of lone people on these sort of desolate locations. Um, so many of his movies too, I describe them as having like apocalyptic endings. They, they seem to almost mm. take place in like post-apocalyptic worlds. They're very like gray and, and, and beige. Um, this, this came out like right after seven and really looks a lot like it. Um, it is similar. It, it takes place in a similar sort of like hellscape where it just never seems the, the weather never seems to be good. Everyone's always pissed off. But yeah, the, the, a great, great enigmatic villain in Mamiya. Oh, absolutely. I find it funny that last week, I forget which grudge it was, but one of them, there's like, you know, the, the, the big lighter. And Jim had mentioned like, only madmen carry that or they're for arson. <laughs> so, yeah, they, they only show up in movies because someone is going to have to set something on fire. Yeah. yeah. And... No, he 
why don't you tell us a bit about what the lighter does and why he has it? Yeah, the lighter is a device that is used uh, by Mamiya in order to gain attention uh, from his subjects. It functions in the way that like we might think of uh, uh, the classic like pendulum in front of the eyes. Um, something to focus on, something to, to pay attention to that keeps you sort of centered and grounded uh, in a sense and puts the individual in a sort of state where they might be open to the kind of suggestion that he's trying to inflict. Yeah, and we find out through the film he has other ways of doing it. Mm -hmm. I, I just love the way his character especially unfolds in this film because he just keeps changing and getting scarier, if you ask me. <laughs> I find him incredibly scary. There's something really terrifying about such like an impassive uh, sort of a guy. Like if he was really like twirling his mustache and like <laughs> very outwardly evil, it would be as scary as this sort of like blank character that we're given. Well, and it's like his villainy feels very grounded. It doesn't feel cartoonish or unrealistic. You have to, you know, be able to hang with the idea of hypnosis as something that can be done. But if you, you know, as soon as you suspend that, to me anyway, it's very apparent how quickly that can go wrong in the in the wrong hands of somebody. I, I like too that he's not like overexplained. Like we learn yeah. a little bit yeah. about his background. We know that he studied mesmer, but we don't find out about like some horrible family life mm -hmm. or something. There's not he and he turned to hypnosis because you know his, he had an abusive father or something like that. We 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 don't get anything like that. Like it, it's so much spookier that he is this guy that just seems to have you know pivoted <laughs> into uh, you know evil hypnosis. The only thing that comes close to that is uh, his mysterious burn scar, which isn't really even explained it's just it's never really there. explained like, like it's suggested how maybe it happened yeah yeah but like anytime sort of any sort of like childhood trauma comes up in this film they're just like no it's it's not that uh, like there, there's a conversation i think pretty early on between takabe and sakuma uh the psychologist that takabe is working with uh where they're trying to like kind of figure out if that's a, maybe a factor and it they're just like no that doesn't make any sense at all yeah well i did find it interesting that there's a great interview on the Criterion release of Cure with uh, an interview with Kurosawa. Hmm. And he says that you know he approached Koji Yakusha, who's one of his regulars. And he said, like, I really would like you to play Detective Takabe in this film. And his reaction was, oh, Mamiya is such a more interesting role. Can I be that guy? <laughs> and Kurosawa was like, this role is for you. I need you to play this. But originally he had said like he wanted Mamiya to be an older guy with, you know, like a big gray beard, just like mm. seems like a lifetime of wisdom. But then once he had Koji Akusho in that role, he was like, I think he needs to be young because he, you know, Takabe needs to be like the elder wise man in the film. I, I think that's a really interesting thing, just how different it would be if it was an older guy who's just kind of like got that like calm wisdom. It would definitely have less impact, I think. I think one of the things that's like scary about Mamiya is his youth. Uh, he seems just like kind of a normal young guy um, until you talk to him anyway. I don't know. It's frightening. Yeah, he just kind of has that like vacant enough look that he's so intriguing. It's like it's definitely part of his charisma, right? Like he, he's able to get a lot of people to talk to him and without ever, ever prompting them. It's always, you know, they come to him but it's because of his mystery, his intrigue. Yeah. It's scarier that he's young too. Cause if he was like an old guy, I don't know. It's like an old guy with like a long white beard. It's a little corny. Yeah. And like, it's, it's, it's scarier that he's managed to do this in like comparatively little time. Mm -hmm. And it's scarier that he might suggest 
like future generations mm-hmm. harboring these sort of sentiments. Like it's it it's scarier to think about like him as like something new that's like potentially arising than it is to think of him as like something eternal. I think. So this film kind of unfolds because they're seeing this pattern of murders, and then how do they catch him? Because the police end up with Mummy in custody. I don't remember yeah. how he gets there. Um, so Mamiya is standing on the roof of a building and is, he, well, and he jumps off. Um, that's when he meets Oida, uh, who then takes him into the station and that, that's how he gets kind of like brought in and processed. Um, and from there it just is being questioned for his, you know, I mean, he, he doesn't ever have anything to say about himself and things kind of unfurl. Cause I think Takabe has a suspicion that like maybe there is a sense of some form of mind control going on based on how, I don't even know if victim is cause like they're the people who committed the murders, but they're also like under his spell. So he's talking with them and starts to gather some details that are all very similar. They're like his subjects. Yeah. I, I was trying to remember whether or not Oida shoots his fellow officer before uh mamiya and takabe like talk for the first time but yeah through questioning of uh, of, uh mamiya's subjects they you know they all kind of present the same sort of amnesic qualities they all want to gesture the the x and oida does too i believe well an interesting thing is they don't show all of the murders but they all of them just have like a moment where all of a sudden they like stiffen up and then they go do the murder and then they're done. Like they carve the X and then they're just kind of like, that was weird. So Lucille, in your notes, you had mentioned interest in the X. (laughs) I love the X. That X is so important to me. There's a few different ways to look at it. The two that stand out the most for me are the common ideas of like, like X marks the spot on, for instance, a treasure map indicating like an end point, right? It's a, it's the, the final place that you get to in whatever your journey is. The second being like solve for variable X. I think both of these concepts can be applied to how the X's show up in this film um, in terms of X marks the spot. Uh, if we understand the X to be like the deep secret desire that people possess of committing murder or, you know, horrible atrocities, which is uh, kind of the viewpoint that we understand Mamiya to, to possess. It holds weight in the sense that like his whole process of questioning people is to try and uncover that deep desire Uh, the end point for him is to get them to arrive at that spot of of accepting you know this kind of this evil within so to speak Um, solving for x is is very you know just kind of on the nose it's literally takabe trying to solve the mystery of the x's uh, the kind of the only variable that links all of the seemingly random murders the symbol appears on the walls of people that have interacted with Mamiya. None of them remember doing it. They all want to get rid of it. They're all ashamed of it. And, you know, in, in the sense that, like, if, if we are understanding it to be this kind of, like, internal evil, I think that makes sense in the sense that, like, you know, nobody wants that secret desire to be uh, to be let out and for people to be aware of them possessing it. Uh, I think, yeah, I think it's a great symbol. I think that it it couldn't be more clear to me, I guess. Huh. I, I, I like the idea of it being kind of like a like a solve for X thing. I know too when he watches the the video of Mesmer mm. hypnotizing somebody, it looks a little more like the sign of the cross. So I think there's sort of like a you know religious uh, connotation perhaps to um, to the you know making the X motion. Mm-hmm. Certainly an arresting image, seeing it carved into somebody's neck. Oh, yeah. Good lord. Mm-hmm. 
for a film that's not typically like in his films in general they're not like grotesquely violent no. there's not a lot of like well uh, no, I, I here and there i guess there's some stuff like creepy has some has some pretty like grim imagery but in general he like suggests violence you know or gives you just enough to to really kind of let your mind run wild particularly with like the kind of like early killings you know we see that guy you see that guy killed a sex worker with like a pipe and that's yeah. that's very uh brief and, and, and suggested um and that's that, that tends to be kind of how they're handled throughout the film and that one especially there's like you know happy piano music playing and i love that catches intro you off guard I think my one gripe with the film might be the ironic music under that like first killing <laughs> when we cut to the detective in the car. I, I hate shit like that. I something that needs to needs to go out is like ironic needle drops to conclude films, especially. I'm glad there's none of that. In general, I think Kurosawa uses like he uses like sounded music really well. It's like it's like creepy and otherworldly without like putting too fine a point on it. You mm-hmm. know, we talked in the Grudge episode about how that one the the first jump scare with um with, with the, the the kid uh, Toshio. Toshio, I think is his name. Is is really like under he, he like undercuts his own scare by like having this weird like whooshing sound effect, and I think Kurosawa manages to like get almost up to that point without like crossing over. Like he, there's a scene in Creepy when the when the guy is like really like close talking to to the main character's wife, and there's a similar kind of like it sounds like the air is being like sucked out of the room or something. Um, he he does that really well, and it really contributes to the, like the, the the sort of desolate, depressed nature of the films. I'm in very intrigued by the soundtrack in this film because there is not a whole lot of music. And like listening this time, it almost sounds like, because uh, we haven't really touched on Takabe's wife yet, but she has some memory issues. And one of the things she routinely does is she'll just run the washing machine with nothing in it. And it just kind of has that similar sound every time he comes home. But I noticed this time, the first time Takabe and Mamiya talk in person, I think that is the background noise that's going during the interrogation. It's just kind of like a, just like an industrial sound. So what do you two make of, I don't even know if we should call it a soundtrack in this movie, if it's more of just like. Just the design. Yeah, the overall sound work, I guess. Well, that repetitive sound, it's a little, it's a little hypnotic. Yeah. It uh, it plays into the hypnosis idea. I didn't pay much attention to the sound at all. Uh, I, part of that was like pretty early on, and I, I have it linked here in our in our document. I read that section of the interview where he talks about not really using sound uh, to elaborate on story, but more to flesh out the surrounding world, which might be splitting hairs um, depending on who you talk to. I think that the sound does a really good job of uh, uh, instilling like this sense of despair. Um, I think it helps to communicate the tone of the film which i find to be very bleak and kind of desperate but otherwise like i I don't know i i don't really have that much more to say about it other than it's just kind of like the 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 low thrum of uh impending doom yeah no yeah i think that's a good way of describing it that low thrum of impending doom i mean it's it's i mean you you know you'd mentioned not really paying much attention to the sound design it's 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 sounds that you can pretty easily Mm -hmm. tune out but once you start to fixate on them they can become like maddening like that washing machine any like sort of repetitive sound like that um yeah i I don't know i think it it definitely plays into the hypnosis idea it definitely plays into the you know driving someone mad idea absolutely you know Various forms of torture rely on just, you know, repetitive sounds or (laughs) stuff like that. Oh, yeah. This is a film that's really built on just great scenes. I think if I said, Mm. what's 
maybe we'll do this in a minute, but if I were to say what's your favorite scene, I think we would probably all have a different one. But I found an interview that I found really interesting where someone asked him about the influence of John Cassavetes on his work. And this was Kurosawa's response. So he said, My view of what Cassavetes set out to do and accomplish masterfully is the subtle effect that a human being, when encountered with another human being or another set of circumstances, the subtle, complex, confusing, and real way in which they slowly are affected by their new circumstances or another human being. So when I watch a Cassavetes film, I am awed by the final understanding that human beings can subtly change in the course of a single conversation. That really, to me, led to thinking about the interrogation between uh, Mm. Mamiya and Takabe because I love how he shoots that part because the entire time the camera is like behind each of their heads and you never see their full face. And it's just, Lucy, I think you'd mentioned that they're kind of two sides of the same coin. Yeah, they they definitely operate very similarly. Uh, If we understand kind of Mamiya's whole goal to be understanding the true nature of people. Uh, We see that very easily reflected in Takabe, who is trying to understand the true meaning behind these murders, much to, you know, his chagrin, of course, Sakuma telling him that this shit just kind of happens and it doesn't always have meaning. But, uh, you know, Takabe does end up kind of going down a very similar uh, descent towards madness uh, in this quest for knowledge, which he does end up gaining, uh, but it costs him something also which is himself and especially like in in that scene that you're you're discussing where uh you know he and mommy are like in the cell and they're talking to each other there's the i think i have a i i've got i call it a hypnosis fight where they're trying to hypnotize each other they yeah they really are just like i ask the questions here and then mommy just keeps asking questions yeah it just uno reversal all day Mamiya says something to Takabe to the effect of uh, you're trying to be two different people. Um, you're one person at work. You're one person at home. You are neither of these people. You are nothing, uh, which is, is basically like how the viewer, I would imagine, understands Mamiya. There is no real you. Yeah. Uh, Mamiya speaks to his doctor earlier, uh, Miyajima. All the things that used to be inside me, now they're all outside, so I can see all of the things inside you, Doctor, but the inside of me is empty. Uh, it's just two hollow people um, trying to understand the motivations and actions of the people around them and failing to do so because they have nothing there. You know, let's actually do that. I'm curious, what is your favorite scene from this film? It's maybe maybe too easy an answer, but I, I like when he when he comes home and like hallucinates his wife mm. having killed herself. Um, that is wild. It's, it's it's very scary. It's like really like kind of dropped in there, very matter of factly. And I think he does that so well across his films, um, having like kind of ghosts like just in the background, or having like death just sort of like in the in the background of a scene. Thinking uh, in Seance, uh, the, the film Seance focuses on a character who's a medium, and like early on in the film, like she's just very like matter of factly like seeing ghosts around. Uh, this felt like uh, like an extreme version of that. Um, and it's also, you know, it, it, it's a, you know, great performance from the from the lead actor um, really gets at the kind of like despair um, inherent to the film. Yeah. Lucille, what's a favorite scene for you? I've got a fun one and a serious one. My fun one is uh, the scene where we see his, uh, Mamiya's doctor, uh, Dr. Miyajima. Uh, yes 
killing the woman in I think it's a parking garage. Uh, we get a little bit of a face off moment as she starts to like peel the face off through the uh, the X in the throat. That's in the bathroom, right? Is it is it in a bathroom? I think it's I, in the I, men's room because there's like a wall of urinals next to it, right? Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah, wherever <laughs> wherever it took place. Uh, I think in my brain I was just like, oh, a car is parking garage. Uh, but I I don't. I think you might be right. <laughs> um, I do like that scene a lot, but I mean, I mean like really it, it is. Oh, actually, you know what it's all about is those, uh, the bus scenes. Anytime that Takabe is on the bus um, and we just get him in this sort of like, you know, kind of cloudy, hazy, ethereal, like plane of existence that kind of seems to be outside of, you know, what we might think of consensus reality. And especially so I think, I think the first time that we see that is, either immediately preceding or immediately following the scene where we do uh, uh, see his hallucination of uh, his wife being hung. And I think like the first time that I saw that, it really made me think that like, oh, okay, well shit, he he's died. They've both died. They're in heaven. They're on the bus to, you know, whatever like kind of afterlife situation is going on. But I think it's indicative of something else entirely. So my brother watched this film for the first time when he didn't realize he was coming down with COVID and it was like the COVID was starting to hit him in the middle of the movie. And so he said he had to turn it off at the point Mm -hmm. when he goes to the cell and they're talking in the cell and mummy tries to light the lighter and Takabe, you know, smacks it away because he's kind of realizing like, okay, that's probably the trigger. And then he does that thing where he, bends the water with his mind and he starts dripping through the ceiling onto the lighter and you know brett was just like i didn't know what the hell was happening so i had to turn it off (laughs) but i do love that scene because looking at that cassavetti's quote where he's saying you know i'm awed by what a single conversation can do to change the course of essentially a person that to me is the moment where it's like takabe realizes he's overmatched and he's not going to be able to defeat him because i think he wants to you know outsmart mamiya but he's realizing like okay maybe this guy is uh above me so (laughs) but yeah there are so many great scenes in this i love when mamiya is at the doctor um Mm. and he's getting into her brain like you know you became a doctor because you wanted to cut a man you know you wanted to see what it's like to slice someone open like there's also what's he talks about being basically a shell of a person in that one. Lucille, do you maybe have notes on that scene? Cause he, he says some great stuff. In there. Yeah, um, yeah. That's, that's during like when he's at the doctor's office, it's the, the quote I mentioned earlier, all the things that used to be inside me now they're all outside, etc. Um, yeah. Where he's, he's pretty, it's like one of the only times that we see Mamiya actually being kind of open, but I think it's to serve like a, a, a greater purpose of um, enticing the doctor in further in order to manipulate her. Um, yeah. So as Takabe is starting to piece together the case, he goes to Mamiya's apartment. And mm. I really love that, you know, they throw so much at you that you can miss it. And like, I was, you know, I was take, trying to take notes while watching, you know, subtitles are appearing. Like, I feel like I missed half the scene the first time because the second time I was like, oh, this, <laughs> there's a lot here. Do one of you maybe want to just kind of run down some of the things that are in Mamiya's apartment and what we learn about him through that scene? Yes, please. Um, <laughs> Mamiya's apartment is at a junkyard. He doesn't have power. Uh, maybe at one point he did. That's unclear. Uh, what he does have is a lot of books on psychotherapy and personality disorders. Uh, lots of Carl Jung. Uh, and importantly, Mesmer. Uh, he's, he's really interested in Mesmer and animal magnetism. We see a paper that he's written, which 
I, I have in my notes would have been incredibly more impactful. I imagine if I could read Japanese, mm-hmm. uh, but we move. But like the Mesmer thing is the, is the big t- takeaway. He's very interested in uh, like deep psychology and personality, but also in this you know field of hypnosis. Uh, and I, I think a, the second time that we see his apartment when Sakama is going through there, uh, and he finds a book on heresies, I think that's really interesting as well. We like it's hinted earlier that. Mesmer might have actually been studying magic and occultism and uh, I think they mentioned alchemy and for somebody in uh, an academic mindset who is really like taking a deep dive on a particular individual such as Mesmer I could totally see them going into that field of it too like what is it that this person knows that uh, is maybe being hidden from everybody and I think that that's kind of like it's not explicitly stated I, I do think that from my opinion anyway that is kind of the the main mechanism that uh we're led to understand about how he's getting people to kill is using uh, a deep understanding of psycho- psychological techniques and hypnosis and also maybe some bonus magic if you if you want if you have the, like the taste for it um, in order to manipulate people and suggest into them this deep desire to kill yeah i, I think it's great He's got a lot of really interesting stuff there. I think the the monkeys also, and especially like the image of the um, like kind of dried and shriveled monkeys in that very specific pose, uh, kind of hints more at that occultism angle as well. The monkeys really stuck out to me. Um, <laughs> uh, very yeah, suggestive of like occultism, suggestive of um, like you know research on animals. Um, you know. Uh, and the, the weird way it's posed is, again, bringing in some sort of, like, religious element almost. Mm. Um, you know, it almost looks like it's, like, crucified, if I remember correctly. Uh, yeah, you know, it's funny. It struck me, because you talk about this movie looking a little bit like David Fincher's Seven. It, his apartment looks so much like where they track down the Zodiac to in Zodiac. Um, I feel like he also has, like, an apartment with all sorts of, like, animal cages and stuff. I, I imagine Fincher has probably seen this. I, I just—it's it's always interesting to see, like you know, filmmakers who seem to be kind of pulling from uh, common references and these mm. sort of like parallels that might be, you know, unconscious on the part of the filmmakers. Sorry, my cats are both in here now. <laughs> <laughs> I think the last major idea I want to introduce is the side plot of Detective Kabe's wife, Fumie. Um, she opens the film, and she's struggling with memory loss. And it just adds an interesting extra dimension to, you know, the, the whole idea of hypnosis and memory loss because her first scene is kind of roughly reminiscent of Mamiya's where, you know, she can't really answer the questions. You know, the doctor's like, have you, do you know what you're reading? And she's like, no, but it's clear that, you know, every week she's reading the same book at her appointments. Um, but at home, you know, I mentioned she runs the washing machine with nothing in it. There's a scene where she sets out a raw steak for him to eat. She's getting lost around town. Maybe do you want to both just give me your take on her character in this film and what it adds? It certainly helps characterize Kenichi as a guy who's sort of at the end of his wits. He, you know, is is sort of on both fronts dealing with kind of uh, mysterious circumstances. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It, it just helps that he's... As a result of his home life, he's kind of going into this investigation already, like, overexerted. Um, and then, yeah, it, 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 her kind of memory loss 
uh, echoes the the sort of stuff about kind of memory lapses and hypnosis that plays throughout the film. And then I think you noted it in the document. I think there's maybe some suggestion that she has some sort of psychic powers as well. I kind of read it that way because the you know the first scene he asks her a question and the table starts shaking, but she's totally still. So that reminded me of Stalker a bit, the end of Stalker. But we can get to that later. Um. <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> okay, Lucille, what about you? What do you, what do you think she brings to the film? Yeah, I. I really think that like all of the scenes that we see with Fumier at uh, her sessions with her doctor are more indicative of, uh, well, I, I think actually Ben and I agree with you that like it's, it's kind of insight into how Takabe is doing and where kind of his head is at going into these things. Uh, we see her come up a lot as a, as a device more than as a character uh, in the sense that like whenever Mamiya is talking to Takabe, like it seems as though like Fumi is kind of like at the center of it uh, uh, from Mamiya's point where he wants Takabe to understand his feelings. And like when we get to the hallucination scene uh, where we see Fumie hanging by the neck, like it's, it's this big pivotal moment because it's, it gets to be Takabe uh, owning his like deep frustration and desire to kill his wife uh, that I, I do believe that he is portrayed to, to have that. But then I think kind of the turning point for him uh, and for kind of how she operates in the movie, uh, kind of the last thing, the last time we see her, she, she's being committed to the hospital, which I kind of view as a sort of uh, an effort to keep her from being, killed by Takabe uh, because he's going to continue to confront Mamiya and doesn't want to be put in a situation where he could be suggested to kill his wife. I, there's just a couple different things that go into that. Notably speaking, I think just like the logistics of trying to kill somebody who's being you know put under watch, um, who has mysterious medical circumstances and is just kind of being paid attention to uh, makes it difficult to kill somebody. Also at that scene, we get the line of the doctor telling Takabe that he looks sicker than his wife, which to, to me kind of lends credence to that. But yeah, I, I don't think necessarily that when we see Fumie, it's very much this like, oh, Takabe is incredibly frustrated with this relationship. Uh, he has, for all intents and purposes, like lost uh, a touch with, you know, somebody that he loves very much. Uh, and that is incredibly frustrating to him. And if Mamiya is to be believed, then he has this deep desire to kill her so that he can escape that. Yeah, I mean, you because Mamiya does get it out of him that like, of course, she's a burden on me, like all this. Yes. But I do also feel like she's the reason that Takabe is able to keep up with Mamiya because, you know, he keeps asking the, his psychiatrist friend, like, you know, what about hypnosis? Like, could this mm -hmm. be a thing that helps? So you can tell that he's definitely tried to take it on himself to figure some things out that the doctors maybe aren't looking for. And I think that's to his aid, but you know, there's only so much you can do, but she does die right in the movie. Mm-hmm. It's like a two second in the flash. hospital. Yeah, she's shown at the mm. end to be dead. Yeah, and I, I don't know. That's something. I maybe I'm like obtuse. I I'm not sure who we're supposed to, like believe has has killed her. I don't know if we're supposed to believe that it's someone in the facility. I don't know if we're supposed to believe that uh, you know Takabe himself has killed her. Yeah, um, it's an interesting shot because she's like taken out on an upright stretcher, and her, if I'm remembering right, her arms are crossed on her chest, right? Uh, yeah, it's, I think she's posed pretty similar to the monkey. I, I describe yeah. the monkey as being like crucified. No, the monkey has its 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 like arms cr across his chest. And I think she's posed yeah the same way. This movie 
throws in so much at the end. Um, we should wind this down, though. We could go for days about this movie. Um, but let's talk about the final scene. It, I do think it is a masterful blink-and-you'll-miss-it type finale. Um, Bennett, do you maybe want to just give us a quick wrap-up of what goes on at the very end here? Yeah, for sure. And I, I actually did did miss it the first time. I remember having to rewind the ending because I was like, wait, I think I must have missed something. But basically, Takabe is at a, is at a restaurant and, you know, he I think we see him make kind of the X gesture in the air. And then the film ends suddenly with uh, like a server kind of walking off and like saying something to one of her coworkers and then grabbing a knife and sort of walking to the edge of the frame as if to suggest that the curse lives or, you know, the the uh, I don't know. The mind it's, meld. it's not quite a curse, whatever you want to call it. The, the mind game. Yeah. yeah. It does imply that Takabe has figured out how to do it. Lucille, do you maybe want to just give us a quick intro on how Takabe and Mamiya say goodbye to each other? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Eight bullets. Yeah, Mamiya uh, is confronted by Takabe at an abandoned barn scene that we see earlier in the film uh, with Sakuma visiting. I don't really understand the circumstances of that, but I think we're led to believe through um, kind of the investigation into the mesmer side of things and the particularly the video that sort of like leads him that leads sakama to that location i might have missed uh exactly how like what the significance of that location is but i don't think it's explained and i think that's a plus i mean yeah but yeah we we get there after a nut like the the final bus scene and we discover that Takabe let Mamiya escape, uh, which Mamiya seems to suggest is like, oh, you really want to know what's going on with me and you want to do it yourself. And then he's shot three times in the chest. Uh, and then they have another little conversation, but it's not really much of a conversation. It's more just uh, Takabe trying to ask Mamiya questions and Mamiya just gesturing the uh, the cross, the X, and then getting the rest of the bullets. He does end up listening to like a phonograph, which I think is interesting. I don't really, I couldn't understand what was coming from that, but um, I think it might seem to suggest that there is some sort of suggestion going on that then we uh, we see propagate at the end of the film. Um, yeah, that that's that is their fi- their departure from each other. His dispatching of Mamiya too is another thing that's just so like matter of fact. Like in a, I don't know, I feel like in an American version of this movie, Mamiya would have been giving some like huge monologue or something, oh, or yeah. there would have been like this huge confrontation. He really just sort of, you know, very matter of factly kind of dispatches with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's certainly a putting an end to uh, <laughs> the situation. So I think the thing I love about Kurosawa is, you know, you can watch these films and be like, wow, that was good, but then you start thinking about it, and it's like thing that stands out to me most in this film is like the question it brings up to me is what is in the power of a question like you know I've done a bunch of interviews in my in my time and you always think about like how are questions going to be received and like how might people answer them and to me that's how I try to guide interviews it's like where is this going to go where am I trying to end up when having a conversation with someone and in this it's literally like why, why do we ask questions? You know, <laughs> like what, what stood out to you about questions in this film? I think for me personally, like anytime mommy is asking anybody a question, he's not asking them the question they think that he is. Uh, we get a lot of like, you know, who are you? 
and the answers being their identity. Um, but he, he really wants to understand who they are as a person, what kind of their, their, their deep inside thoughts are and their honesty. And I think that's, that's kind of what draws Mamiya to Takabe. But in general, I mean, there's, there's so many questions in this movie. I think there's more questions than there are statements mm-hmm. and it's all just trying to get to what the truth is, uh, which is never really made clear and is borderline impenetrably indecipherable. But I, I mean, like, I think like at its base form, at least for me, you know, it, it's, it's what is the truth of the situation? What is the question that is really being asked? Uh, how do we get the information that we want out of somebody by asking them the right question, even if we mean something else, but know that it's going to be interpreted in a certain way. Yeah, I mean, I just, you know, it, 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 it's one of many things about the film that really kind of gets under your skin. You know, you realize how annoying it is to be to be asked the same question over and over and over again, particularly in his intro scene on the beach when he's really kind of getting mm-hmm. on that guy's nerves. It, um, you know, it reminded me of... Um, I've never been audited by the Church of Scientology, but I've, I've seen, you know, depictions of it on film, uh, particularly in like The Master. It reminded me of that, the, the sort of uh, Scientology auditing process, just kind of bombarding people with questions and repeating the same question and kind of trying to, you know, get them off guard. All right. I think, like I said, we could probably talk about this movie for a good four to five hours. We're going to take a quick break, though. We will be back to talk about 2016's Daguerreotype. I think the worst school project I ever had to do was in college for an intro to film class. We were looking at the early forms of motion picture, and we had to make a zoetrope. It was essentially like a merry-go-round on a stick with a series of, you know, alternating frames. And uh, I was very proud that I made a stick figure doing a jumping jack from the comfort of my 110-square-foot dorm room. But it was raining. It was, you know, construction paper. And by the time it arrived, it looked awful. And uh, I got into class and everyone had like, you know, fully animated cartoons that were just absolutely beautiful. And uh, I, I got to be. Um, <laughs> we're talking about Kiyoshi Kurosawa's 2016 film Daguerreotype. And that is a very early form of photography. It's not a zoetrope, but uh, it also had painstaking ways to make it so... Bennett, do you maybe want to give us a quick rundown of what this movie is about and how a daguerreotype fits into it? Yeah, so we're, we're focused on a character named Sean, who is the uh, the new assistant to a uh, renowned fashion photographer who kind of lives out in this dilapidated mansion in uh, the Paris suburbs with his young daughter. And he is uh, the, 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 film that, the photographer who's played by the wonderfully named Olivier Gourmet, um, maybe it's gourmet, um, is, uh, is really obsessed with the recent-ish loss of his wife, kind of unexpectedly. I think the implication is she killed herself. And he is obsessed with uh, making these very, very painstaking daguerreotypes to try to capture her essence on, uh, on film, um, which he makes his daughter sit for. Um, and he has this crazy apparatus and she's got to sit perfectly still for like hours and hours. And, um, well, it turns out maybe, maybe his daguerreotypes are bringing people back to life perhaps. Um, and there's, uh, it's, so it's sort of a, uh, 
you know, a ghostly romance. Uh, romance. A, a relationship is struck up between Jean and uh, and the, the photographer Stefan's daughter uh, Marie. There's a uh, somewhat superfluous kind of like real estate plot, but I don't know. I, I think it's you know it, it features many of the aesthetic hallmarks of his films. It features the same sort of sense of loss and desolation and desperation, but you know, in, in a new setting. Um, and I, um, you know, I, I wrote this in the document. I think most of his films that I've seen, um, you know, the Japanese ones, they, they often have this kind of like brown and gray and beige sort of color palette as if like color has been like leached out of them or like bleached out of them. And here it's a more colorful film, but it's still kind of dull. It's like, you know, it's like a photograph that's like faded over time. And, uh, yeah, no, I, I think it's really, really sad and really kind of spooky. Great, great film for the, uh, the Halloween season. So Kurosawa has over 60 directorial credits to his name, and he said the reason he makes so many films is because in Japan, filmmaking is a job. It's the money's nothing like Hollywood, and if he doesn't keep making films, he will not eat. He's done a bit of everything, though, and because of that, his films cover a ton of ground. I personally tend to struggle with classifying Kurosawa's films into a single genre, and Daguerreotype, as you mentioned, is certainly a ghostly romance. But I don't feel terror is like the primary function the ghosts play in it. So, Bennett, what would you say to people who uh, might say this not only isn't a horror film, but also isn't a Japanese film? Huh. Well, I mean, I I guess I would, again, return to, you know, I've got a pretty, pretty liberal definition of horror. If it has the, the sort of trappings, it really qualifies. And, you know, I would say to them, what's scarier than losing someone you love? Sorry, just bring the mood down. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought it was interesting that Kurosawa said that he wrote this film about 20 years prior to shooting. Uh, he was approached by a European producer at the peak of the J-horror craze. And then he forgot about the script. In 15 years, a French company said, hey, let's do a movie together. And so he dug up this idea and they liked it. So he said his goal for this was to lean more into elements of like British and European style horror. So what can you tell us about the feel of this movie? It's a tough piece of his earlier films in the sense that there's just this kind of like pervasive sense of sadness. Like I said, he lives the, the you know, photographer is sort of the, you know, central figure of the film or the, you know, the guy who kind of kicks the plot into place. You know, it's in this desolate sort of crumbling mansion. There's, there's this real sense of like death and decay about the film without putting like too fine a point on it. And I really like the way he suggests the photographic process occasionally with like the way characters will pop up. There's a scene uh, late in the film where Marie kind of appears unexpectedly and it looks almost like when she's coming out of this sort of like shadowy kind of copse of trees, it looks almost like it's like a photo developing. And there are scenes with ghosts in the film and you know when the when the ghosts appear they often have kind of like blurry visages there's these really kind of like subtly creepy ways that he both suggests the kind of ghostly nature of of, of the figures in the film as well as the you know the photographic development process and i uh, yeah i don't know i think it's like an it's an incredibly sad film <laughs> it's you know it's it's suffused with with so much like despair and, um, you know, like all of Kurosawa's films, or at least all of the ones I've seen, it ends on quite a despairing note that I found, uh, you know, I, I, even if I saw it coming, I, I found it quite moving. So, Lucille, I know you're not quite as fond of this film as you were of Cure. Give me your general take on this film and kind of where you're leaning in regards to how you enjoyed it. 
I kind of just enjoyed it aesthetically. It's very, it's very dreamy and ethereal. Like we, you know, we've, I've, at least I've tossed those words around a lot uh, uh, so far, but uh, it's something where like you can really sit down and just kind of hang out with this odd sense of things not being how they might seem. And especially with like the way that Jean interacts with uh, like his friends at the bar and things like that. Where he's like, he's, he's something's very off about him pretty much the whole time. Uh, I found it very unsettling, but I think that's kind of all I have to say about it in that context. So I hate the word slow, but this film does feel very, I think, methodically paced is a fair way to put it. Um, how, how would you describe its pacing? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say it definitely has a deliberate kind of languid pace. Um, I, I like the film, so I might describe it as like hypnotizing, but uh, mm. people who don't like the film might describe it as, uh, you know, sleepy. It, uh, it's very suggestive of the, the long uh, daguerreotype development process, let's say. I mean, I know you said that you hate slow, but I, it's, it's, it feels pretty slow. Um, I, I agree, Bennett. I think that like it is through like a lens of developing uh, and capturing a daguerreotype. I, I can, I can see that perspective um, that kind of recontextualizes it in a way that makes sense to me. I don't, I don't necessarily think that it's easy to follow along if you're not giving it your undivided attention. So Bennett, you kind of related it to a daguerreotype image and I, I saw Kurosawa say making a film really isn't that super different from creating a daguerreotype image because he says, you know, sometimes it can take hours to walk away with a single shot. Then you add that up to make a whole scene and like you can have days shooting just a few minutes of film. <laughs> the contraption you mentioned for holding the subject still, I thought that was going to become like the focus of the horror. Like, you know, it's either like a torture device or like it's, you know, killing people, something like that. Um, he, he didn't stoop that low, but it is a really just like restrictive object and it forces her to pass out on more than one occasion. But it does raise the question, like, you know, when you have to go through this much effort just to have this painstaking labor done, like, is it worth it to get that lasting sense of, like, I accomplished a great work of art? Am I, uh, am I an, the ends justify the means guy when it comes to art? I mean, I guess so, yeah. I mean, I don't think, like, you know, people should get, like, killed to make a movie. But, I don't know, I am generally someone who thinks that, like, the sort of, like, sacrifice and, like, sweat ends up being, like, evident in, you know, like, a great piece of work. I don't know, I myself am, like, an incredibly lazy undedicated person i can never imagine doing something like this but uh, i certainly admire it in filmmakers it depends on on the time period that you exist in right like is it worth making a daguerreotype in uh 2016 uh maybe not there's other ways of of accomplishing uh high levels of art especially considering you know the history of the medium um if you're not doing something specific with the medium what's the point is kind of a a stance i have uh, with the art that i make i think that there is maybe an argument that you know trying to continuously recapture the the image of people that you've lost is holds merit in in some sense but there are other ways of doing it i'll say though i love this as like a character type when mm-hmm. he says like this is this is the only thing that should be considered true photography i was mm-hmm. like oh chef's kiss i was like i <laughs> right. almost guffawed i love i love just like pretentious totally impractical oh, yeah. characters who are like obsessed with that sort of thing like the, the the fashion shoot scene is great i also thought it was great to see like matthew amalric show up it's like oh we're making a film in france we have to have one of the the five french actors that everybody knows so as we mentioned in the last episode, like or the last portion, he does slip philosophy into his films, but it's never a like 
do you see what I'm doing? It's more just like he puts it there and lets you engage with it if you choose to, which is how I think it should be. We have a lot of, you know, this is my idea, especially with modern horror that I think just so often falls flat. I think my two favorite Kurosawa films are probably Cure and Charisma. Charisma is about, it's Detective Kabe playing a different detective, um, but he goes into the woods and he finds a tree that is maybe killing the forest and so it becomes this debate on if this tree is killing the forest which one deserves to live and he just has these dilemmas that he produces and like this one is essentially about does art lead to immortality and I guess that could kind of follow the last question of like you know what does it take to make a lasting work and do you really need to as he says give part of yourself to the lens to have something immortal to stand on I'll say that, and it's probably just, it's maybe just because I'm like an incredible narcissist, but anytime I write something, uh, you know, for the, the, the closest thing I have to art when I'm writing for Split Tooth, I, uh, you know, I do, I do try to, they're all personal essays in a respect. There's like a piece of me in all of them. And then I also try to ensure that it's like, if necessary, the last word from me on the subject. Like I really do try to cover the whole thing and that for me it's of a piece with trying to, to, to put like a personal stamp on it. You know, I consider that kind of part of the personal stamp. And uh, no, I mean, I do, I do think, you know, creating a great work of art is, is immortality. You know, when I, I'm thanked in the acknowledgements of a book that I actually have, right. I've been using it as a prop in interviews unsuccessfully. And like that for me, you know, even, even that it's like, well, I'm never going to make a great work of art, but you know, that's, that's something similar. It's a little bit of, a little bit of immortality. So I definitely, I, I definitely relate to uh, Stefan's sort of uh, fixation on imbuing his art with like a piece of himself and also the notion of kind of like living forever through the art. I mean, obviously we see the, the dark side of it here. And I think that first encounter in the basement with his wife is like one of my favorite horror sequences ever honestly yeah i mean i i just want to say like i agree wholeheartedly with this concept of like artists having to put themselves into their into their work um and especially so i mean like when we think of vision in the context of art that is really what creates something that in my opinion lasts beyond its you know it's con it's like immediate context of the the time and situation that it's come out in and this concept kind of abstractly i suppose i've been thinking about a lot for a long time because there's this conversation uh that we seem to continuously have of like separating the art from the artist and lots of fervent disagreements on both sides of, of that particular one. But I, I, I do agree that with the sense that like if an individual is putting themselves into their art and if they stay true to the vision that they're trying to materialize, uh, that has the best chance of lasting through time. I think it's interesting to see that concept kind of used in this, uh, in this way um, and see it explored to the detriment of the people involved. But you know, it is not necessarily, uh, there's not always a good ending, I guess. Not yeah. good quality, but like good, like happy. And I think that's one of the strengths of this film is that it is wrestling with that idea of art as immortality, but like it also killed his two favorite people in the world who he subjected to these terrible shoots over and over and, you know, mm. had to use muscle relaxants on and <laughs> didn't, didn't end in a happy manner. At, at that same time that the movie's making you think about immortality, it's also making you like live with the idea of just infinity. Uh, mm. uh, uh, what's the word? Oblivion. I mean, the shot of him at the end when she's like disappeared, you know what I mean? Like you're, you're really kind of like left to sit with that and you're left to imagine like the car ride back. You're left to imagine like, oh, what, where the fuck does he go from here? What, what, what happens? I, I, I found that like, you know, like as the credits roll really, I felt myself considering just the, the, the immensity of the events that had happened on screen and then the notion of like people having to like live with them. 
and that's you know that's that's that sort of eternity as well so we haven't really touched on marie yet ben you always maybe give us a quick intro into who marie is and her role in the film Sure. Yeah. Uh, Marie is uh, Stefan's daughter who poses as her mother in these kind of elaborate daguerreotypes has to be kind of rigged up into this uh, apparatus and kind of midway through the film, she falls down the stairs, presumably to her death. And as they're kind of as, as Jean is sort of rushing her to the hospital, I think she kind of walks off and comes to that's that scene where she seems to sort of materialize and um, her father doesn't believe that she's survived. And Jean decides to basically keep it a secret that she's really alive as a way of convincing him to finally move on and sell the house. They, they live together and they have this intensely close relationship, um, Stefan and, and Marie. And, you know, it's one of the many ways in which he is like stuck in the past and kind of stuck in this kind of stagnant cycle is that he won't leave the house. He won't leave Marie. He's, you know kind of fixated on her so they're hoping that her you know dying will will lead him to sell the house and and sean will get a few million euros for himself um this is one element of the film that i wish they'd explore more jean at points starts to wonder if marie is really dead there's a point where he like holds his like head up to her heart to try to listen for a heartbeat and i feel like that just kind of just kind of comes and goes really quickly i wish we'd had a little bit more of his kind of uh uncertainty about the the nature of their relationship whether or not she's even really there because we get a lot of them hiding, but we don't get a lot of them, you know, we don't get a lot of him, you know, puzzling out the, the, the mystery of how she managed to survive. Yeah. So I do think one of Daguerreotype's greatest strengths is that it does operate like just slightly outside of reality, like a lot of Kurosawa's films. Um, there is a dreamlike element, but especially once they've moved in together. It does remind me of the bus scene in Cure, which Lucille, you talked about a bit already. Mm. Um, but, you know, it's like they're just kind of, it looks like they're floating in the clouds on that bus scene, but it's like, wait, are they or is it just foggy but at one point john tells marie it feels like we're not living in a reality and she responds with you know but we're happy this way and then she asks where the boundaries of reality are and that's kind of where his films live um i mean do you feel this whole film exists slightly askew of reality or does it kind of begin to depart as it goes on kind of my take on this is um, going back to something we were talking about earlier about the setting of cure kind of being in this, it's like things are identifiable, but it seems to be operating on like a kind of different understanding of what the world is like. Uh, I, th- I think like post-apocalypse kind of, kind of vibe was, was uh, brought up. And I, I think that that sort of element uh, can be applied here as well, where it is like something like adjacent to what we might think of as reality, but it's not quite there and it's not quite exactly how we remember it to be. And especially, I don't know, the way that uh, Kurosawa tends to present his themes comes off that way very heavily, I I feel. Yeah, I think we're in a sort of a state of unreality from the beginning. You know, it, 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 I think at the, the start of the film, he's, he's arriving um, in the town, so we don't really get any... we're never situated in uh like a normal world (laughs) we just kind of you know Mm -hmm. arrive and it's instantly kind of off and the house is so weird the basement is so weird every everything about their relationship is kind of odd uh you know he he hired him specifically because he doesn't have experience in photography right It, it obviously you know gets more and more unreal as it goes but i think like a lot of his movies were already situated in kind of this this sort of in between space so the ghosts well, there is the early scene where there's, you know, a woman in a dress and it's not clear if it's, you know, the ghost mother or the living daughter, which I like it because that is kind of just like, okay, we're, something's amiss here. I honestly believe that the first ghost scene in Pulse 
is the scariest sequence I've ever watched. Um, it's just that moment where the ghost is like slowly walking towards the guy in the room. He's just realizing there's nowhere to go. Uh, nothing to do. We talked about this last week in the grudge episode, but you know, so much of Japanese horror is about having the ghosts appear and not actually touching people like pulse is about ghosts. Find a way to, (laughs) infiltrate people's lives through the internet and they're so scared that they essentially kill themselves and it's that type of fear that it's not necessarily hostile ghosts like in the u.s i mean takashi shimizu called it you know masculine horror in japan versus a more or masculine horror in the u.s versus a more feminine horror in japan but do you feel so we have a similar sequence in Daguerreotype. Actually, there's two. Uh, Bennett, you mentioned the one in the basement, but then again, the wife comes out in the greenhouse. And it's, a, again, a very slow-moving, but just, like, beautifully shot sequence of a slow-motion ghost appearing with, like, a blurred face. I mean, just knowing that he's already done a masterful take of that scene in Pulse, do you feel having a similar sequence is effective? I mean how do you feel it compares i think i think both of those sequences are incredibly effective i mean i think i think that scene at the end is like the best i've ever seen slow moving creepy ghost done and it's obviously it's you know it's sort of a trope particularly of these these japanese horror movies i yeah i i, I like that the ghosts aren't especially like threatening here it, it again it contributes to like the the just air of sadness around the film the ghosts are haunting him in the sense that like they're there but they won't talk to him like when he's trying to engage with his wife in the in the in the basement like that is more existentially horrifying than if she you know pulled off her face and like you know said boo or something Mm -hmm. the fact that she's you know there but not there and then the ending scene is is really incredible it goes on it it feels like she takes like 10 minutes to walk over to him in the greenhouse. And it looks a lot like the way her face is sort of distorted. looks a lot like Laura Dern at the end of Inland Empire uh, to get my mention of mention of Lynch in there. There it is. Um, if I could say one thing, not to be the cinema sins guy. Wow. There's that scene where he's like, <laughs> where he like drives up to like a police investigation or, and then like, just kind of like, like, like Clint Eastwood and Cry Macho just kind of like walks off and like hides off to the side. Do you remember what I'm talking about? I, I'm sorry. I'm just so distracted. We just got like three Bennett highlights in a row. We got sorry, the Lynchian, we got the Semisons, <laughs> and the Clint Eastwood reference. Wow. I realized we were getting. I, I realized we were getting down to the wire. I got to try to squeeze those in for anyone playing along at home. <laughs> What's your take on ghosts? Do you, do you both believe in ghosts? What's uh? You think they're real, fake? How are we defining ghosts? So that's the thing. Because like, yeah. So I, I, I mean, I think it seems like inarguable that there are unexplained mm-hmm. like electromagnetic phenomena oh, right? yeah. or phenomena plural um but yeah i mean i have a hard time believing it's the the you know souls of dead people yeah taking like human form and walking around right i i definitely like i'm more inclined to agree with the concept of ghosts if we think of it as like uh, I, i've heard it described before as like an like an echo of the past so to speak mm-hmm. at least for me um if we're if we're thinking of it in like in the real world in like a more kind of grounded sense, that's that that would make the most sense. Um, if there are uh, forces that we don't necessarily understand, uh, but that can maybe be measured, uh, that do seem to have a presence in the world around us, that makes the most sense to me in the way that it would manifest in the sense that like a person's actions or atoms or whatever kind of just echoing through the universe over and over again, and it would kind of also lend it to this idea of why we don't necessarily get ghosts from the future but as far as like 
a spiritual entity that has its own sort of volition and I guess motivation. Uh, like I, I don't necessarily agree with that concept or that, that uh, definition. I, I go both ways. Um, when my mom was in college, she swears she lived in a haunted house. Mm. She had many, many, many weird things happen there. Um, she's convinced that it was an 11 year old girl, I think who was either killed or died in the basement. So like, there are things like that where it's just like, that's getting really specific, you know? Um, cause like dogs would come into the house and they'd kind of be like, no, I don't want to go in there. And then mm. they'd get inside and bark at the ceiling and spin in circles. It's like, okay, that's a, that's a bad sign. Um, but like <laughs> she said, you know, like one time one roommate stayed home, the rest of them went to a party and the roommate the next morning was like, Oh, you guys got home like at midnight last night. And my mom was like, no, we didn't. We got home at like two. What made you think that? And she's like, people were banging pots and pans in the kitchen last night it's like oh what (laughs) and like one time my mom yeah it's weird um like one time she dropped a train ticket behind her dresser and she's like i'll just i'll grab it in the morning she was going home the next day and she woke up and it was on the dresser and it's like things like that are like okay how do you explain that you know um but i haven't really had any ghostly things myself I'm not going to deny it because I've seen enough horror movies. I'm not going to be the one to be like, let's stay in a haunted house. (laughs) But I don't know. There's definitely some weird unexplained stuff out there. Bennett, you mentioned, you know, jump scares uh, get you every time and you believe in ghosts. So... I am. Um, I, I like too that the even the living characters in this movie, particularly Stefan, have such a like haunted kind of ghostly quality mm. to them. Like he's also just kind of like wandering around haunting this house. You know, Jean and his interactions with his friends. We don't get much of a sense of this guy's like life outside of this situation. He might as well be like a phantom as well. Mm. We talked about the Cassavetti's quote, where like a single conversation can change a person. That's kind of how he approached Cure. I don't know if there is that moment specifically in this film but i think the closest thing we have is when stefan's being haunted and you know he tells his wife like i made you immortal like and this is this is the thanks i get for rendering you immortal and then she topples the photo from the desk so i'm just curious how you feel the ghosts are similar and different from other ghosts in kurosawa's films because there's definitely some strong emotions attached to these ones you know, it's interesting. We, we, I, I'd mentioned in like seance how he'll sometimes have ghosts kind of just appear kind of matter of factly that are just sort of like part of the, the set. They don't really have like any plot motivation. They're not, they're not certainly not like malicious. Um, there's a little of that here in the sense that the ghosts just seem to kind of be around. They don't seem like they're especially malicious or, or anything like that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, this is truly like the most like despairing depictions of ghosts I've ever seen. I mean, obviously, like, for there to be a ghost, someone has to have died, right? It's 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 inherently sort of a uh, emotionally fraught situation. But this is really, like, I don't know, like, better than any film, I think. It, it's something that really kind of captures the, the, the sort of sadness of both the person left behind, kind of hoping the ghosts are around, as well as, like, the ghost himself, who is sort of trapped in this kind of like in-between state you know it really does feel like it's something that's been done like against their will that they've been you know kind of rendered uh immortal through these daguerreotypes i don't i I can't think of a of a film that's better captured the kind of like sad aspect of like a ghost story one thing i think is important to mention is marie has a greenhouse and she's growing all these rare plants and you know we kind of get the the mirrored aspect of like you know her father is trying to preserve this rare art form where he's like the only person presumably 
in the world who still has a functioning daguerreotype. Um, you know, he's a pretty renowned artist for what he does, but she's trying to protect these rare plants. And the mercury used in making the daguerreotypes is leaking into the greenhouse and killing these rare things. So she's asking John, like, can you please help me not spill any of this because it's killing these beautiful things. How do you feel the greenhouse factors in? Because it is clearly an important place because that's also where her, her mother committed suicide. And something that I really like about that scene uh, in particular is John's kind of, I guess, disregard for care. He doesn't really, we understand him to be an outsider to uh, the daguerreotype process and, understands fundamentally that the mercury is dangerous and so it has to be deposited uh, appropriately but has a lack of care when it comes to ensuring that none of it drops at least that that particular aspect of things uh, just kind of makes me think of the the ultimate pacing of the film where it's like oh we're hurting things kind of on accident we think we're doing the right thing but are maybe causing more harm than we mean to uh, and it's just that's just an in, something interesting that I think about that particular sequence. And if we think of like the greenhouse as you know a way of trying to preserve the mother as well, but the plants being harmed, and we can liken that to the daguerreotyping process of trying to keep the mother alive in that form, but maybe ultimately harming like the spirit. If that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. I, I think it's 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 a um, it's like a not especially subtle way of suggesting the ways in which this this obsession with photography is sort of like poisoning their lives and sort of, you know, harming other things. And I think the notion of like keeping plants alive in a greenhouse, it's like it's such a stark contrast to what the father's doing, like photography wise, especially uh, there's a scene like late in the film or late ish in the film where he's taking like a photo of like a dead kid for like the parents doing the, the, like a creepy, like Victorian sort of uh, like, you know, coffin portrait. Yeah. And, and, you know, Maria is so appalled by this. So he's, he's doing this weird like facsimile of, of keeping something alive. That's ultimately, you know, kind of poisonous and, and, and depraved. And, you know, in the greenhouse, they're actively working to, you know, keep these, these plants alive. So it's, you know, it's an art that's built around like living things as opposed to this art. That's all about an illusion of life. So I think the last major topic we got to cover is when John and Marie are living together, you know, they're clearly seem to be in love, but it's like, is, is this possible, you know? <laughs> but they drive away, they try to get married, and, uh, you know, John says, well, I've seen it in a movie, we're going to marry ourselves, you know? I'm curious about your takes on the wedding scene and how it brings the film together. Uh, well, it's during this scene that the the somewhat telegraphed twist that she is in fact dead is is you know brought to light, and I, I really enjoy the way that's handled. You know, a, a character kind of happens upon John by himself, thinking he's with Marie, and there's no like musical sting to like underscore that. There's no like big like boom, whoa. You know, it doesn't. It, it's like like so many other supernatural elements in Kurosawa's films. It's 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 handled very matter of factly. And um, I think Raheem's performance here is is quite an excellent evocation of not just grief, but like total like disbelief. Um, you know, he really seems quite heartbroken by the the uh, you know the reality. And uh, yeah, great great scene. Again, I mean, it's I hate when people say like if people hold it like against a movie that they 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 knew where it was going because like I don't know, isn't that just a sign that like the director has like a coherent vision in mind and is like, you know, serving it. But um, 
I don't know. It, it seems like that's something that a lot of people complain about on like Letterboxd. And uh, I'm reading, uh, I've got like Keith Ulick's review for from Slant Magazine up. He talks about uh, telegraphed plot twists. Like, I don't know. It's not the... It's not the worst thing in the world for a film to do what you thought it was going to do. And then the, the final scene of him kind of alone in the car really, um, again, just like kind of like leaves you to sit it, sit with this like idea of, you know, eternity and of, of someone's like complete aloneness, which is, you know, though it's very personal in scale, is, is tantamount to like the world ending. I mean, I think going off that, like, I don't really think it's built to be a twist i mean i think it's pretty clear because like you know she falls down the stairs and her dad's like yeah i don't think we're ever supposed to believe she's really alive right yeah yeah and like when she you know she falls out of the car on the when he's trying to drive her to the hospital and then the next day they're searching for the body in the river it's like there's so many ways that or times that he could be like this is what actually happened but then oh here's this beautiful ghost coming towards me i'm gonna accept this this reality you know it's like he kind of has what he wants and he's the last one to realize what the truth actually is you know i do love that the last time we see her is you know they say till death do we part and then the priest walks in and is like what are you doing here we're not open and she's gone I think the movie is at its most interesting when the ghosts are wandering around the house and it is at its least interesting when John is trying to pull off this like real estate scheme. And I, yeah, I I do wish that there had been a little bit more, you know, exploration of his kind of his suspicions that she might really be dead. You know, we get kind of like a couple scenes and then he's, he's, you know, Oh, well, of course not. When, uh, I don't know, I not to be the CinemaSense guy, but it just, you know, uh, one wonders why he wouldn't be a little bit more suspicious. But again, I, maybe it's, you know, it's, it's delusion, right? It's, it's, it's like, you know, the, it's like Stefan believing he can bring his wife back. You know, I think, you know, these, these incredibly deluded characters who are basically like ghosts themselves. Um, it's, uh, it's incredibly sad, the, the, the level of self-deception that goes on uh, among both Stefan and, uh, and John. One thing that might just be fun to close on. So we have a 29 year gap between these two films. Um, you know, we mentioned Kurosawa has over 60 directorial credits to his name. Like he's a guy who's constantly making films. And I think of the ones I've seen, there are very few that I'm not interested in. I think he has great stuff. But when you think of Cure versus Daguerreotype, what stands out the most about the evolution of his style? I'd say a lot of the same hallmarks are there. There's a lot of kind of asymmetrical, empty, kind of scarily empty frames. I would just say that, you know, the 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 progression that we see in Daguerreotype, it proves that he can kind of apply a lot of these same techniques to something that's in kind of a slightly different genre. Um, and it shows, yeah, for all their kind of similarities, he's very obviously not a not a one trick pony. He can kind of he can kind of do it all. I feel like there's a lot more like world in Daguerreotype. There, like, Cure is very, at least from my perspective, uh, it's it's a lot about the people. Uh, it's not so much about their environment, uh, or at least not overtly. Whereas in Daguerreotype, I feel like the environment it plays as much of a role in telling the story as the characters do. That's that's the thing that grabs me immediately. I think in general, also maybe. It's it was nice to see a little more, uh, let's say, like overt exploration into the characters as people versus just kind of like setting up dominoes and watching them fall, uh, which is a little bit how I feel Cure is presented. I wouldn't necessarily be able to say whether that's indicative of a specific kind of evolution over time or whether it's just how each film happened to be produced. That's what that's what grabs me. Should we uh, wrap this up with a pick? Sure. 
I already kind of gave mine. I mentioned the last episode, Kira is my favorite Kurosawa film, so I'm I'm going to pick Cure uh, over Daguerreotype here. But I do. I, I, I watched Daguerreotype in two sittings because it was kind of late at night and mm. I was falling asleep because I'm old and tired. Um, but I, I was a little worried when I paused it because it was, I think, right after the river scene when she falls out of the car or whatever happens. And I was a little worried about where it might go. And I was happy with the path it took to an ending. I, I do think it ends stronger than it begins. If you're a Kurosawa fan, like I recommend it just don't expect it to be like oh yo scary 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 it's it's much tamer than that but i think it's in a good way lucille how about you i think you've already kind of telegraphed your answers we'll do you first yeah i i mean between the two i'm more inclined to say right now that i prefer cure mm-hmm. uh i think daguerreotype is something that i'm going to be coming back to at some point just like i think there's a lot that i missed in my watch of it that i might appreciate on a second go around I didn't dislike it maybe as much as uh, it might have. I might have seemed to indicate. I think there is something there. I think that perhaps my own headspace kind of negatively negatively informed my perception of it. That said, I mean, like, here's a masterpiece. It's it's a really really good movie. If you haven't seen it, like, you should. Yeah. That's kind of <laughs> all I have to say about that. Yeah, Cure can really do no wrong. Ben, what about you? Though I'm intrigued because you brought Daguerreotype in, and you've uh, you've put up. A so I like Daguerreotype a lot. I would I would rank it pretty highly uh, among the I think like 12 Kurosawa films that I've seen. That being said, I think Kira is unimpeachable. I mean, Kira is for my money his best movie, and really one of the the kind of great horror movies. Um, this no wonder it's in the Criterion Collection. <laughs> yeah. Kurosawa, I'm I'm very glad we selected him. I mean, we we kind of touched on it last week, but we struggled for a while to pick the directors that we wanted to do for this series because there are just so many good Japanese directors who have made incredible horror films, but then don't really have a lot of them to be considered like horror directors. So Kurosawa was always at the top of our list, and you know it's like Kieran Pulse, how can you go wrong? You know, but then diving deeper, it's like no, he's he's got a lot of good stuff here. So this is probably a good time to say. Next episode, we have another filmmaker who has, what, 60 to 80? Uh... Oh, I think he has over 100. I think, like, 13th Warrior Ooh. was, like, his 100th film. Wow. Um, yeah, we're talking about Takashi Miike next time. And he is another person who has done everything on film. I mean, he, he is just as prolific as it gets, and he has some of the highest highs of Japanese horror that I have seen. Sounds like we're going to have Jim Hickox back with us next week. And I know Mike's films are something that Jim has referenced as inspirational in his own films. So I'm really excited to see where he goes with that. Um, Bennett, you're going to be joining as well. Uh, yeah, I've got a lot, I've, <laughs> I've got a lot of homework to do. Uh, he's, he's got quite a lot of yeah, films. I think I, I think I've rounded up most of them that letterbox classifies as horror, but uh, quite a lot of watching to do. Uh, between now and uh, next week. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, any concluding thoughts about Kurosawa before we close this out? Are you both feeling pretty good? 
good director. Yeah, great director. Really, yeah. um, you know, I think we've said it a couple times, a couple different ways. His films really like get under your skin. He's he's an incredibly like singular and like singularly upsetting uh, filmmaker. You know, you mentioned charisma a couple times, Craig. That's a great one. Uh, Retribution is really great and really scary. Um, Seance is great and has like kind I of like, like a one. black comic ending. Um, Ditto Loft is also really scary and has just such a like comically bleak ending. Um, that you really, really cannot go wrong, at least not in my experience with his films. Also, like, who does better one-word titles? Oh, yeah, so many good one-word titles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Kurosawa, he's, he's a master. I think that pretty much wraps it up for today, though. Thank you so much for joining today. Lucille, we'll have you back on soon. This was a blast. Thank you. Bennett, I'm still blown away by your string of all of your... Uh, you got them all in one <laughs> sentence today, Sorry. essentially. The <laughs> cinema sins, lynching, and that masterful (laughs) alright well thanks for listening we'll be back next week with Takashi Miike we'll see you then